Welcome to Start By Listening, the podcast about sexual harm and trauma. We are centered on educating and empowering our Western Kentucky communities. Our goal is to transform the way we talk about sexual harm and trauma. Transformation begins by listening to understand. We talk so you can listen today and change the world tomorrow. Welcome back to Start By Listening. It is friendly therapist Jennifer with my PSC. Hello, everybody. It's Shelby. Welcome back. We're so glad to have you. We have another amazing guest. And I know I say that every time, but it's true. So I can't lie. It's true. We have with us today Beth Bennett from True North. And we are super excited to meet her in real life and to hear about all the amazing things that she does and True North does for our community. So without further ado, welcome back. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Thanks, guys. I know, right? You're like, oh, I'm on the hot seat. So yeah, I'm Beth Bennett and I work here in Owensboro at True North Treatment Center. I'm at LCSW, LCADC, and RYT. So all of that word salad meaning I'm a licensed clinical social worker, I'm a licensed clinical drug and alcohol counselor, and I'm a registered yoga teacher. Um, so all of that really brings me to a space of uh, really loving trauma-informed content mm-hmm. uh, and being very passionate about working with the trauma population here in Owensboro. Wow. So you're like the trifecta. (laughs) Thank you. That is so cool. So do you get to utilize yoga like in your practice with your clients Mm -hmm. and with substance use and all this cool stuff? So uh, something that I'm very fortunate to be able to do is not only have a lovely office space, but I also have a lovely yoga space right next to my office. Mm. And so I'm very much able to incorporate that into therapy sessions, however that looks. Like mm-hmm. maybe we do 30 minutes of EMDR and then we do 30 minutes of some body work mm-hmm. to really process that into the bod. Um, and then also, uh, you know, I work with some brilliant people who mm-hmm. very much support me uh, in creating some larger kind of trauma-informed classes. So um, we are developing our yoga program at True North rapidly. Oh, wow. We have multiple teachers from the community that come in uh, and teach classes to all the phases of our IOP clientele. Uh, and then we are getting ready to kind of kick off offering a Y12SR. Uh, basically, that's yoga 12-step recovery. So it's a hybrid of a meeting and a yoga group. Uh, and that's going to be open for anyone in the Owensboro community. Uh, Mondays at 12 p.m., Jan Alvey will be leading that for us. <laughs> yeah. So we're doing some cool things. That is like really in my mind progressive um, because I will readily say my knowledge of substance use recovery or recovery in general is extremely limited and it is limited to like AA and NA and I think those were the foundational Mm -hmm. paving stones Mm -hmm. you know for the recovery world um but I, all of us in this room know that that is not always for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think 
recovery has to be personal, right? And goodness of fit and how it fits with that person and integrates into their life. AA and NA, man, they have taught me some powerful things, right? Um, some of my favorite material <laughs> comes from oh, yeah. uh, those foundations. And, you know, one of the things that AA teaches is not to put all your eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. And so we really have to diversify what recovery looks like if we're going to make that sustainable. Absolutely. Um, so whether that's incorporating spiritual pieces or uh, movement pieces, um, all different types of support into our lives so that we can sustain. Yeah. I like that word sustain because yeah. that is, that's, that's one of those things like with clients, like how do I keep this momentum? How do I keep moving forward? What if I get stuck? we all get stuck gosh yeah <laughs> you know, life you know but that's when we um, I think have the ability to lean back and remember especially if we use body things the body always will remember yes on how to move it through mm -hmm. you know I, I think for so long, well, part of why I even became a therapist was because I saw an MDR presentation. <laughs> so let me throw that out there. Really? That's why I became a social worker. Um, That's cool. You know, I, I saw a demonstration of EMDR at KWC. Okay. Uh, Amy Wilkie from Counseling Associates came in and, uh, you know, did one of our classes on that. Mm -hmm. uh, she was my social work teacher my senior year, and that pivoted me into applying for grad school. Um, awesome. But I really do passionately feel um, that body work is the missing piece for trauma-informed care. Mm -hmm. um, I watched people in recovery struggle mm -hmm. so much with letting go of these traumatic events for years and years. Mm -hmm. And to me, EMDR is the piece of the puzzle that really uh, sutures things together and allows people, again, that sustained recovery, so. Yeah, I think there is so much potential in the world of trauma healing in general. When we can do as many inputs into the nervous system with those restorative healing practices that originated thousands of years ago with indigenous cultures and I think we can learn and integrate and give the respect and the honor, mm -hmm. right? And then add to it the spiciness, that's the word, yeah. of um, neuroscience, yeah. neurobiology. Like I was reading on Facebook, some group, I, I randomly get groups thrown to me and I'm like, the hell is this? I guess that artificial intelligence knows it's sending me. This lady wrote an article about equine therapy mm. with EMDR. Mm. Check this out. The tappers were on the horse and on the person walking beside them. Regulating. In the moment, <laughs> movement. I was like, I'm getting chills now. Yeah, that's And beautiful. I was like, Excuse me? What? How does that work? Okay. Like, I'm, I'm seeing your excitement, and I'm trying to visualize. Again, <laughs> not a therapist. Therapist in training. training. <laughs> okay, getting my degree right now. But 
not into yeah. the EMDR thing. That, like, <laughs> what, putting tappers on the horse and the person, like, yeah, co-regulation, but, like, are they vi- vibrating together? Like, what? Because we did an episode with equine therapy. We, we saw the horses. We mm-hmm. saw what they do. We saw how beautiful it can be to have them mirror your energy. Like, the EMDR with the... I'm confused. Please explain. Go for it. So, uh, basically, the tappers Mm -hmm. are going, you know, back and forth, bilateral stimulation, soothing the nervous system, and we're doing the same thing with the horse, right? And so, then, those two nervous systems Mm -hmm. are going to settle in together. And so, it's helping the client, if their nervous system is really um, Mm -hmm. out of that window of tolerance, basically, to settle in, to be in the moment, and to process whatever is going on. And I would also add, that's beautiful, I would also add that because doing um, trauma work, energy is is being together, right? Mm -hmm. It's being shared. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things that I really like about the Bridges program here is it's not riding on top of the horse to do the work, it's groundwork, it's side by side, Mm -hmm. but still there's that shared energy. And so whatever creature mm-hmm. is in this vicinity living being it's going to share and take on yes so while we're processing those trauma memories there is a huge release mm-hmm. of sadness grief sorrow anger shame oh, feels... <sighs> right yeah and it's going to be transferred yeah and so the tappers move it out okay and then the walking and the movement also help mm-hmm. move it through same, the body. Yeah, that same left-right movement when mm-hmm. we're doing any kind of movement work is also helping to balance that nervous system back out. Have you ever done EMDR while doing yoga? Um, I haven't done it while doing yoga, but I definitely have kind of incorporated those back-to-back, Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That just kind of, that would be fascinating. I wonder what that would feel like sensation-wise. Let's try it out. Okay. <laughs> I'll be your guinea pig, man. I'll, I'll do it. it. <laughs> okay, like next, next Friday. <laughs> no, but, but yeah, but, and you know, I think too, like, um, especially for individuals in recovery, I think there's so much shame um, because of choices mm-hmm. that were made. And I think there has been a tendency in the olden days and some some now that not understanding what led to. Yeah. I, I hear you, know? you. Yeah, I hear you. I, I really think um, so that old school kind of substance use treatment was very much just straight CBT and in people's faces Mm -hmm. and even when I began my career that was still very much a lot of the professionals that were left in the field right that that I was learning from not all of them right but there was still some of that um I definitely see that much more shifting now and there is still going to be some of that old school oh yeah uh hard brow uh, tough love it's like tough love has its space 
in addiction recovery, um, setting boundaries, mm-hmm. leaving people where they're at um, if we need to, and having compassion for somebody who is already beating up on themselves with guilt, shame, and remorse for the choices that they have made um, is a very powerful thing, right? Um, some of our clientele have never had the ability to have a nurturing relationship, right? And and having that in a professional way mm-hmm. um, is very helpful. <laughs> so yes. I'm curious, uh, What's true north? I'm sure you get a lot of involuntary clientele, people that are court ordered to be there. Absolutely. And I'm sure there's a lot of pushback. And I'm going to be completely honest when it comes to the yoga, EMDR kind of thing. I was skeptical at first. I was a skeptic. I was like, <laughs> that's that's woo woo bullshit. Like, no, I don't I don't need any of that weird energy in my life. And I know a lot of my friends who are in recovery are on the same page with that you know so I'm curious like what kind of pushback you get in those spaces how you are effectively integrating it and like what the reactions are so I think the largest thing for myself is that I really ground in the science Mm -hmm. when I am teaching really to anyone even my friends I'm really grounded in the science of um, typically my anchor or foundation for any kind of therapy or breath work is is counting right and part of that is because it was very supportive to me to know how long I was supposed to be holding a pose or uh, sitting especially when I very first started out uh, kind of with that type of work so um, I do get some pushback but honestly not as much as you would think Um, I would say at this point that EMDR fire has been appropriately lit in Owensboro. Thank you, New Beginnings, right? <laughs> 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 and so um, I really feel like we have a community that is becoming more educated about the scientific benefits. Like, yeah, this stuff might be woo-woo to some people, and there's a whole lot of that supports this Mm woo-woo, right? Uh, There's a reason that these practices Mm -hmm. in many forms have been utilized for centuries. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of feel like the science is just now catching up and we're just now beginning to really understand uh, some of those practices, so. (laughs) I will say like, you know, because I'm a nurse as well as a social worker, and you know, evidence-based practice yes. is the gold standard, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I will also say that when I started in New Beginnings in 2016, I quickly came to this understanding, like this embodied understanding, mm-hmm. that if something works, I don't have to have an explanation. Yeah. Like for me, you know, mm-hmm. and if I'm trying something new, I'll tell a client, um, I have no scientific basis for this. This is just something that has come across my page. I read on it. I learned it. I'm doing it on myself. This is what I've noticed. This is what I've heard. This is what I've seen. Would you like to try? Yeah. Voice and choice. And uh, Transparency, too, though. Yeah. But I, that's, I, 
think sometimes that gold standard, people are like, well, what if it works? I mean, 20 years ago, people weren't using horses Yeah. to, to do therapy work. You know, 30 years ago, people thought horses were stupid and just to be utilized to work. Yeah. Well, we also have to say that, like, a lot of evidence-based practice, at least in its origins, was developed by white men for white men. So, uh, (laughs) like, that's a big thing. I know we're moving forward in the research and, like, incorporating um, different voices when it comes to that. But voices and choices. Yeah. Yeah. But that's so true, you know. Um, And there have been things I've experienced. I, too, had the, this is woo-woo bullshit. Like, I will, I'll be the first to tell you that. Mm Um, when I first started in, I, in tw- January of 2017, I got to go to an EMDR training. Um, and Becky, my clinical supervisor at the time, she had said, okay, I'm just going to prepare you. There's going to be a lot of crying and there's going to be, and I'm like, Jesus, what the <laughs> hell? That sounds traumatizing. <laughs> I mean, in a room full of strangers, like, no, thank you. I, who do you think I am? Right. Who are you? You know? And I said, okay. She goes, so just think of a memory that's not too trauma. And I'm like, okay. But I went and I was like, I'm going to open up just a smidge. Just, I wasn't full. It was a smidge. And after about the first 30 minutes, and then in 45, and then I was like, I don't feel sad. Like, I'm like, what's wrong with me? I should be sad. I don't feel sad. That was a sad thing. And then I remember driving home from Louisville because it was a weekend intensive. And the whole way home, two-hour drive, I'm sitting there. I'm trying to make myself cry for two hours. Like, I'm trying to make myself cry. Like, I'm bringing up this memory. And I'm kind of, like, for two hours, I couldn't cry. And I said, the world needs this. Right? (laughs) At seeing is believing. Yes. Feeling or not feeling. I had not done any research. I didn't know that it was evident. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, the woo-woo is (laughs) woo-woo. Been to it. I'm curious if you're comfortable sharing, what was your experience learning EMDR? Um, So, actually, my experience learning EMDR is one that I'm very comfy sharing. Uh, (laughs) So, and it's one that I will share with my clients as kind of my sales pitch for, like, here's this thing you could try if you would like. Yeah. So, part of uh, getting trained in EMDR is doing EMDR yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I went into that space, and I, it was at the training that New Beginnings did. I think it was, was it at Owensboro Christian, maybe? Uh, that was our advance. The uh, okay. The initial was at the hospital. Okay, yes. In the auditorium where you couldn't drink any water. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, so me. That seems not true. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so me and several of my friends had gone, and, you know, we're splitting off into groups, and I'm a very, like, typically shy and introverted person in my personal life. And so it's like, you know, I'm not letting anybody have shit on me. (laughs) 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 Not crying in this space, you know? Um, And so I used uh, a memory that I thought was pretty, um, 
like neutral. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so my husband is a, a whitewater kayaker. Uh, he kayaks like class three through five typically. So oh, he's pretty cool. intense. I was going to say that sounds intense. I don't know what that is, but it's pretty intense. Sounds badass. <laughs> it's pretty badass. Yeah, he's pretty badass, quite honestly. <laughs> uh, and so I used the thought of him getting trapped under a rock, right? So yeah. that would be when he was gone on the weekends running rivers and I was not camping with him. I would have debilitating anxiety to the point that I would have to like very mindfully compartmentalize. Yeah. Um, and so I used that as my initial target. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't have even talked to you about that fear before without just, you know, my whole nervous system really being in that hyper reactive state, you know, feeling like I was chattering on the inside. Yeah. Um, and after, you know, that day or so of processing, uh, the realization that I came to is that I was waiting for a phone call. I was waiting for a phone call that he was hurt or dead Mm -hmm. and I was paralyzed by the fear of losing him. But the trauma piece was the phone call. Mm -hmm. It tied into my childhood. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, you know, waiting for a phone call then. So, uh, you know, I'm not letting them get shit on me, but no, it definitely tied into my own trauma oh, yeah. world. Oh yeah. Um, we can't like hide those things from ourselves. <laughs> and so, I mean, you can try really hard. <laughs> you can try really hard, but it's going to be super uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so for me, that felt so freeing, right? I had all this newfound space mm-hmm. where I wasn't feeling reactive. Yes. Um, and I could just, you know, enjoy my weekend when I didn't decide to go with my husband. Um, mm-hmm. So it was freedom for me, but it also allowed me the ability to use a story of like, hey, I couldn't even talk about this before, right? I couldn't share this. Um, and then I also like to share with my clients that, you know, you get the little baby like epiphanies along the way with EMDR. Mm-hmm. It's something that keeps working long after mm-hmm. you have a session. And so, Maybe a week or so later, I was shutting down my office at night. I reached up to my door to grab like a coat or something and something completely unrelated. I thought, that's why I do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Went about my day, went home. I'm like, Jerry, my husband, this is why I do this. He's like, yeah, babe, I know. (laughs) (laughs) It was really blatantly obvious to him, right? Mm -hmm. But to me... It was not. Mm -hmm. It was kind of tangled up in there. Mm -hmm. And again, it created some space to allow me to see kind of my own truth. So I feel very passionate about EMTR, Mm -hmm. uh, not only because of my personal experience, but because of the shifts that I've seen in my clients. The things that felt so big and heavy before, especially with some of my clients I had been working with for years. Mm-hmm. Yes. And seeing that shift and like the possibility that it created for them. Oh man, it's powerful. <laughs> I feel you on that. Your energy around this is just so exciting. It's like, oh my God, I can't wait to talk to my therapist next. <laughs> like, let's go. Right. <laughs> and it is. And... I will tell you that the um, the effects are lasting. Yes. Like, it's permanent. Like, it's not like, oh, no, what if this brings back in? Now, there might 
come forth new mm-hmm. things that un- that surface that oh I didn't think right, but um, it is very much and it's lasting, mm-hmm. and I think that's what gives people that space of and uh, you know in the therapy world we're widening the window of tolerance. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Of when, when I first started, you know, my floor was right here and my ceiling was right here. Mm -hmm. And that was it. And it was like, like spiciness, like maybe my spiciness level of experiencing sadness was only like a three. I can't go above three. That's three is my ceiling. You know, (laughs) Um, in which, you know, for an entire grouping of people you know recovery that is huge to widen that window so you're not in dorsal shutdown in your nervous system and seeking out drugs or alcohol or other things that keep you in that dorsal space yeah you know I think the the biggest thing that I go back to with like substances is like it's it's really just a way that we dissociate. <laughs> right? It's coping. It's, yeah. it's just an easy way to cope. Well, it becomes a survival skill. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? And, um, you know, teaching clients um, that they don't necessarily need that, if that window hasn't been expanded, is very tricky. Right? And so we have to work on the roots of the issue, the trauma, before the addiction, right, the leaves on the tree yeah. are going to, um, it's, it's going to feel safe to pull away from that, you know? So. Speaking of leaves and leaves on the tree, that brought to mind this beautiful infographic that I use in a lot of my trainings on the ACEs. Yeah. Um, and so it has this beautiful picture of the tree with the 10 ACEs on the leaves. But then this, what I love about this organization called PACES Connection is it then shows the roots, what birthed Mm -hmm. the adverse childhood experiences. And then it shows the environment. And and they added pandemic after, you know, the start Mm -hmm. of COVID. Um, I'm curious in the work you do, Beth, typically, you know, they say research has shown that most people living, I'm going to just say United States because this is where we live, have one to two ACEs most we know people have more but people in recovery how many aces adverse childhood experiences and i'll put a link in the show about that for people who are interested to know how many would you say they have out of 10 (laughs) uh we're looking you know especially with our mandated population that number is much higher Mm -hmm. i would say five and above um yeah and in some circumstances, it, it might lean further on that scale, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Trauma's the gateway drug. Yes. And that's just... That's well, trauma's the gateway, yeah, the gateway to it all. Yeah. Right? Um, I, I kind of always go back to with clients, like, I don't necessarily have a, a negative view of any substance. Mm-hmm. It it's not really the substance problem, right? It's more about why are we using the substance? What are we using it to numb out from? And how can we talk about those issues so that we don't feel like we need the substance so much? Mm-hmm. Um, and taking the focus off of what has kept somebody alive yeah, and giving them new ways of beginning to think, 
Mm-hmm. Sensation, feel, and emotional feel. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is so cool. <laughs> I'm just sitting there going, I like that. I like that a lot. Mm. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to let that just marinate. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you have um, a memory? of someone that you've worked with where you saw transform right in front of your essence. Oh, gosh. And what was that like to Mm. see and experience and be a part of that sacredness? Gosh, I have so many of those memories. Um, I think that's what keeps us in the field and doing this work without getting like dark and twisty and jaded all mm-hmm. over. Mm-hmm. Um, that means you're good at your job too. Well, Did you have so you. many of them? <laughs> thank you. Um, I, right now, I, I think the things that I see the most of as far as transformation is uh, because I am a little bit more leaning towards the woo, I get a lot of clients who are a little bit more leaning towards the woo. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that means that I get this beautiful space to talk with people about uh, cool things, well, things that I think are cool, like religious trauma Mm -hmm. and spirituality Mm -hmm. um, and how we can integrate that piece back into our lives um, in a more healed way. And so I think those moments, um, those EMDR sessions, Woo-wee, like you can feel the energy in the room shift. Like I will get a cold chill through my entire body mm-hmm. and I will see the client begin to shake it off um, or kind of like their body posture begins to change. Um, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's glorious. I'm feeling that now. Like, my nervous system, I'm, I'm getting teary-eyed when I think about that. Yeah. And I can feel that beautiful essence coming from you. Oh, man. Yeah. It's, um, it is a sacred thing to get to do, um, to be trusted, to hold such safe spaces for other humans. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's not much better than being able to do that in my opinion. Yeah. I'm sure, like, with the area, especially, religious trauma is big. Um, Not being from here, like, my, where I'm from, like, there are different areas of religion, but, like, this area seems like, just as a whole, a very religious community, like Owensboro Mm -hmm. in and of itself, which Mm -hmm. is fascinating to me. Um, We don't need to go down that rabbit hole, but... I, I feel like, yeah, the that's an interesting, that's an interesting statement. My mind's going in like a thousand it's different right. directions right now. Um, yeah, that's something we don't really think about. Like, I'm when she said religious trauma, I too was kind of like, my little antenna went, whoop. It, it's something I, I honestly see quite a bit of, and... <laughs> that and medical trauma right those have become two of my like really like areas of niche kind of interest as of recently because there is so much um you know it's that whole thing of like 
not being able to have a voice in these systems that don't really necessarily support us having a voice. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we bring addiction into that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And kind of like the political climate of addiction in Kentucky in the medical world. Woo-wee, right? We get some very complicated issues that might arise as a result of that. Not only complicated, but I have yet to see or hear any responsibility or acknowledgement of the Western medicine saying we created this problem and then we created it and then we created a solution to this problem and now we make gazillions like that is criminal yeah you know? I, that's criminal i get very worked up about the, those mm-hmm. you know social worker systemic issues get, mm-hmm. get a little justice oriented um but you know i i even think to like my own friends um some of whom are like highly educated women And when they go into these systems as advocates themselves in the community and have horrible experiences, Mm -hmm. and then we think about our client populations who may not have had the resources or privilege that we have had to be able to get degrees, Uh, it's disheartening Mm -hmm. uh, at times, you know? But it also can be exciting to empower people and see them, Mm -hmm. I don't know, uh, get some results. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I feel you on that. Um, And I think what I have really loved learning about the last three years, polyvagal theory, nervous system, just understanding how my own nervous system interprets something or someone who is safe mm-hmm. or not safe, right? Mm-hmm. And I think back to my own journey in the medical world, both as a professional, right, and as a um, participant, a patient. Um, and it's very, it's been a very interesting, like, coming to an understanding of why I liked this medical professional and why I didn't like this one. And I used to would just say, oh, I don't like that person. Mm-hmm. I just don't like them. Or I don't know why. There's something wrong. But I didn't have any more. That was it, right? There was no language before. Before you know, you know. Yeah. And so now I can look back and I can go, in those times that were really awful working in the ICU, the reason I liked this person was because I felt safe mm-hmm. because I knew they were going to help me in that moment with whatever the need was. I knew like not just here, but here and here, like all three in alignment, <laughs> just like the big, not the big dipper, Orion's belt, you know, they're in alignment in the stars. Um, and now our clients always have huge medical trauma because of being sexually harmed, right? And it's like invasive and things that we 
do to keep our bodies healthy. It can be harmful, not because it's purposeful, but it's just, it's invasive. It's triggering. It's triggering. And I always now, I'm talking and telling people, go with your gut. Yes. And if you are uncomfortable and you feel you can speak up, do. And if you are uncomfortable and it's too overwhelming to speak up, maybe take somebody with you. Create a code word. Mm-hmm. Right? Or it could be a look. Mm-hmm. This look means, get me the fuck out of here. <laughs> but I, I'm frozen. I can't talk. Right? Mm-hmm. And then my, my friend's job is to go, we're done here. And get up and leave. And I remember when I said that, someone said, I can't get up and leave. I'm like, really? Why not? How come? Right? Well, because it's the doctor. Position wow. of power. There you go. And that and that's the thing. It's a power differential, yes. right? And so, uh, so many of us, right, especially if we have this belief like, I should behave a certain way mm-hmm. in front of this professional, mm-hmm. it becomes very hard to get up and walk out. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So great. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that is the beautiful part of embodied healing mm-hmm. um is it, it, and it's not a, i don't know where like all the traumas come from but the ability to speak up um and just to acknowledge in this moment my nervous system is saying this is not okay and go with that and to see clients begin to do that is oh my that is so awesome that's the stuff right there you know and then here's the really cool part like I had a client share something they did that was so brave, like so brave. I was like, I would never be able to do that. Like seriously, it was that that level. And I shared like in that moment, I said, I just want you to know, as you're telling me this story, my nervous system totally went dorsal because I knew I don't have enough courage or bravery to do what you did. And it was really cool because in that moment she stopped and she said, I really believe you on that. And I said, because it's true. Yeah. It, you know, and I'm like, I'm in amazement. I'm like, you did <laughs> And she said, you know, she goes, two years ago, I would have not believed you. I would have thought you were blowing smoke up my ass. She goes, because she said to me, you do amazing. And you, you're loud and you're, and I, I, I am. <laughs> but I too, I'm like, oh, something's cool. And she said, but now, she goes, I believe you because I, I feel that. Mm. It's like, yeah. And we just sat there and was like, wow, let's just feel this in this moment. That's beautiful. <laughs> Isn't it though? I mean, and there's no billable code for that. <laughs> we don't bill, but no. you know, in, the, in our own private practice, what code would you use from the ICD? Is it 10, yeah. you know, 25, who knows? There's no code for that. And see, that's the piece right? Mm-hmm. That's not evidence-based. That's the piece that it's just inherently embodied and felt and experienced. Oh, so that brings up talking about billing. I really have <laughs> question about working in the world of addictions and when it comes to insurance. I know that um, I've seen places that people try to enter recovery 
and, or enter like a rehab facility like and they haven't used in a day right and they're like sorry you're not actively high right now we can't help you and it's like oh well let me go down the street and buy another bag so that I can actually come in and get help like I need detox or like kicking people out because they run out of days on their insurance and they Mm -hmm. just can't and I mean that all contributes to relapsing so have you seen that with the organization you work for and like what are your thoughts on billing when it comes to helping people uh, enter long-term recovery uh, okay, so I feel like there's a couple of questions in that, so I'm going to try, so bring me back around if I miss one. Okay, sorry. Uh, I, I, I ask multi-layered questions because my, right? my brain goes blah, blah, blah. Uh, So, um, something that I feel like we do a really good job at at True North is doing a very thorough uh, intake assessment mm-hmm. using ASAM criteria. And because we do use that criteria, it gives us a very good knowledge of like what level of care we should be placing somebody at. So whether or not that's outpatient um, care, like just coming in, seeing a therapist, maybe we sprinkle some groups or recovery meetings into Mm -hmm. that. Maybe they meet criteria for a full IOP or perhaps they need more, right? And they need to go residential. Um, so I think that there are definitely tools that help us make those assessment decisions. Um, but one of the things I will say that True North does an excellent job of is, you know, we have access to case managers on site. Mm-hmm. We have access to peer support on site, um, in addition to all of our lovely therapists. And so mm-hmm. on intake, most every person that walks through those doors is getting a case manager and a peer support specialist. Um, and part of what is very helpful about that is the whole idea of the warm handoff. Um, so when I worked at the start program, um, part of what we were very passionate about was the warm handoff. Um, but it really is a great practice. Mm -hmm. So it's the in-between person, right? Mm -hmm. It's the person that walks with you, to do the hard things that maybe you would run from. So it's the person that calls you on the first morning of treatment and says, hey, Susie Q, we're, we're waiting for you here, or do you need a ride? We'll come get you, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think the missing piece at many times is that warm handoff, right? Yeah, like uh, the person that cares for you in between sessions. Um, and so I think our our community at True North has really done a beautiful job of, of building that. Um, so that's that question. The billing part of it, um, you know, there are, well, I'm going to get on a policy rant, I guess. Uh, do. <laughs> I love it. I love policy. I'm passionate about oh, it. That's my, that's my favorite part about okay. social work right now. <laughs> so um, 42 CFR part two is an additional level of protection to substance use clients um, that protects their confidentiality from being abused due to stigma. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, it's an additional layer from HIPAA. So we have HIPAA and then we also have 42 CFR part two. Oh wow. 
Right. So that's why if we get subpoenaed for someone's records, we have to redact any type of substance use. Absolutely. Got it. Absolutely. So 42 CFR part two gives all these beautiful laid out kind of areas of how your substance use information will not be used against you. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, That and we are also a protected class under the American with Disabilities Act. Right. So that's another piece that I find very important to educate clients on is if you self-disclose to an employer and then they use that against you, that is a violation of the ADA. Well, look, I, just, I, I didn't know this. This is this is awesome. We're a protected class, right? So, um, I I think it's just very important to educate clients on their rights, yes. right? But also when it comes to things like subpoenas, right? I'm very upfront with clients. Like you can subpoena me, absolutely, and you have to realize what may be in this record, and it may be a better situation for me to just write a letter. Mm-hmm. That reflects, you know, when you've been here and what treatment has looked like, but without doing specifics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was always taught a subpoena is uh, not necessarily a, a sure thing. It's kind of a bullying, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, I hate to say it that way, but mm, uh, it just is, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I, in all, in most cases, I will say, I really fight to not have to disclose that entire record mm-hmm. um, because, again, stigma, right? Uh, Absolutely. That's, that's probably not appropriate for most legal proceedings to have that in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, because it will shadow and slant your view. Mm-hmm. Because think about this, like just not even in the legal but, and I'm going to just go backwards in my life like 20 years ago, right? When mm-hmm. I was in my 20s. When I didn't know what I know now, right? And I think about how I thought of people, right? When I found out that they were using this or doing that or they got a DUI. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Before I knew anything. Um, and that was just because that was my emotional part, making judgments. Yeah. Um, and I know that the judges are supposed to be unbiased and fair and, you know, but they're, they're humans. Yeah. Just, just like I am. And so that can can shadow and really muddy your view. Yeah. And I think most especially when we're looking at like a small community, Mm -hmm. right? Like, we are we are still very tight knit in many ways here in Owensboro, mm-hmm. right? And so that stigma can follow you for a very long time, right? Um, so again, I think it goes back into like this systemic discussion of like, oh gosh, sometimes the legal process can be the trauma in and of itself, 100%. right? Um, we talked a lot about that with uh, Megan, yeah, mm-hmm. in January. Yeah, the legal process is 100% traumatic in and of itself, both for the people who are navigating it because of substance use issues. I am full, we need to decriminalize all drugs. No one should be sitting in jail on a drug charge because it is a mental health issue. And decriminalization is the only way that we can start saving lives because you you put someone in jail for six months 
for uh, opiates and then they get out and they use again they use the same amount they used before they go in now we have another dead body on our hands yeah. because someone did not get the help that they needed because rather than being in any type of treatment they were thrown in jail um, and more traumatized so they reached for the most common coping skill that comfortable coping skill that they've utilized because it's like forget that let me numb out yeah very passionate about decriminalization what's what's even the purpose of putting into the newspaper it's public shaming divorce decrees what's even the purpose of putting (laughs) people who duis um burglaries what's it's it's shaming yeah which Correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't that go back, uh, like, to the colonial days? Mm-hmm. Of the public yes. being in the... Yeah. What are those things called? Oh, like the stocks. Yes. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. I, I definitely very much agree, right? Like, I there's, mean, there's no reason we need to publish... No, if it's public <laughs> record and I, as a person, want to know, then that's on me to go to the courthouse to say, um, I'd like open public records or something, but you know what? There would not be that many people that do that because that takes so much time. Right. Yeah. So now we have the shame of, oh my gosh, I'm using. And now we have the shame of, now I'm in the paper. I made headlines. Or I'm in that little section. Right? Yeah. Put that in the paper? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Why? Here in Owensboro, they do. Oh. I don't know Again, if it's every day or I don't, I haven't read a paper in 12 yeah, years. So I haven't, I, yeah, I haven't read the MI in a long time, but there is a section in the records section where they will put the arrests oh, and they will put. It confuses me so much. And I don't know if it's because this is such a small town and like, mm-hmm. like you guys are a tiny little town and there's like nothing surrounding you. So this is like the hub for everything. So anyone on the mm-hmm. outskirts has to come here and like, this is like the central hub and there's nothing else around except for Evansville, but that's a different state technically. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's because it's Owensboro or if I'm just now at an age where I'm recognizing these things because I moved here when I was 25, 26. And I guess I didn't care about as many of these things, but like every time we do this podcast and I learn something new about this town, I'm like, this is so weird so weird. We're, we're an we're a old southern town is yeah. what I would kind of say. It's a culture shock, honestly. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, like, the more people mm-hmm. I get to know, the smaller I realize the town is. And it's it's just, it's, again, yeah, the culture shock. Very weird. Yeah, you might want to just, like, for the next week, just, like, get a paper every day and yeah. just, like, look through it and read. And, again, because it's been years. But, like, I, I know with beyond a shadow of a doubt like, the two most read areas of the newspaper are the obituaries mm-hmm. and, and the records. And they will put in their births of babies. And um, here's another stigma. Property sales. Uh, property sales, how much you paid for your property. Well, and if everybody divorces. knows everybody, how damaging. Like, there's no confidentiality. Yeah. Like, there's no there's <laughs> no. no anonymity in this No, town. there's not. <laughs> yeah. and okay. The last time, and this is again 12 years ago. But when, like, they would put the births of babies in the paper, like, if there was just one parent listed, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, I think if you, yeah. you know, if you uh, maybe lost a child, too, like, yeah. uh, right after birth, like, 
There can be some very traumatizing circumstances with those announcements. Mm -hmm. I feel like everyone's probably just writing that being judgmental. Just... Well, I will tell you during COVID, especially. It's giving me anxiety. Like, I don't want to live here anymore. People are going to find you and judge me. Like, uh. Guess what? They're already judging you when you walk down the street. I'm just saying. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But, like, during COVID, like, I know um, I too got a little obsessed about the obituaries. Yeah, same. Just because, and they don't. You don't really know how someone dies. It doesn't say that in there unless the family puts it in there. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we want to thank hospice. Well, then you know if people are thanking hospice for care that that was some kind of a terminal. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. That's how you know. But especially with um, the um, increased level of, like, people who um, have taken their lives Right, mm-hmm. and it's so whenever you read in the paper what found dead in their home, you know, it is so stigmatizing yes. and it is so traumatizing. Well, and not only, you know, the families have already been through enough. Yes. if that's the circumstance, and then yes. now we have like a kind of like a read through the lines public shame, and we also have TikTok now. Right. And Facebook as well. Mm-hmm. And I know, uh, I don't know if you're on TikTok or not, Beth, but I'm sure if you're not, you have seen the videos um, when people are recording individuals who are extremely high oh. and who are acting in ways that people find to be oh. funny. Oh, yes, I have seen that. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? And number one, they're videoing somebody without consent. They're putting it on a worldwide platform. Platform. And, uh, gosh, in the last, what, 10 years, when people have become viral, is the word memes? That's normal, yeah. Right? Because of a a moment. I I think as society, like, oh, my gosh. Now, if you were putting a video of yourself up and you... Yeah, that's something different. Totally different. But I think that, that shame part, I mean... Well, and like how it kind of comes back to that issue of how much can you consent if you were under the influence? You can't. Mm-hmm. You can't yeah. consent at all. Yeah. That's our world, right? Yeah. There is no consent. Uh, those just remind me of all the videos. So from Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, love Philly, uh, Philly forever, but Kensington's a really bad area. And there are a lot of videos of just people walking down the street in Kensington. And it's a huge open air drug market. Like the heroin ep- epidemic where I'm from is, uh, very, very, it, it's an epidemic for a reason, but yeah, I've seen a lot of videos of people just walking around Kensington and it is like post-apocalyptic sad. And I mean, I think it, it's truly just a symptom of late-stage capitalism. I mean, people can't make enough money to afford housing, to afford what they need to live a happy life, right? I'm sure you see that all the time. So how many people come into your office who are living in poverty, who can't find employment to make enough money to meet their basic needs, and it's cheaper to buy drugs than it is to pay rent? Because you know what? I would rather dissociate and not have to feel all of this pain than have to work in a society that is so soul crushing where I can barely afford to get by every day. Wow. So that's 
definitely a real issue. And I, mm-hmm. I think part of the, okay, there's, there's a lot of pieces to that. Uh, I know. Do we have 25 hours? <laughs> that's all. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's a very valid. Yeah, no, very portion. valid question. Um, so often, you know, this piece of addiction to the lifestyle comes up a whole lot in conversations with clients. And it's like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to return to this lifestyle of dealing drugs because you know that you can provide for your family very quickly that way. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that fast money can become very addictive in and of itself. So, you know, I've even especially when I was working in the jail system, that was a very common thing as, uh, you know, somebody might uh, identify their drug of choice as the lifestyle and not necessarily really? a specific drug. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. See, I'm learning so much. Yeah. So the addiction is the lifestyle. Fast money. Versus the actual. Selling. Wow. Right. Did not know that. That's, I'm going to take that in. And if, you know, if you are somebody that in your home has been the primary provider mm-hmm. and has provided a very beautiful lifestyle for your family as a result of that fast money, mm-hmm. now you're being asked to go to an employment agency and you're going to get under a living wage and you're going to probably be treated in a different way, stigmatized. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, There become a lot of barriers for Mm -hmm. adopting a different lifestyle. Um, So we definitely do see that. Um, uh, There was another piece from that I really wanted to jump off of, but I lost it, Shelby. Oh, that's okay. I mean, you jumped off in the way of selling drugs. I wasn't even talking about selling drugs. I was just talking about using, like, I mean... As a way to cope with capitalism. As a way to, yeah. a way to cope with capitalism. And it's like, I, see, yeah, it's just easier to be high than to have to deal with Absolutely. everyday life. Well, and that I don't kind of... want to live in a shitty home and not be able to afford to do anything. And it's like a bag of heroin is cheaper than going to the fucking movies. Sorry, I dropped an F-bomb. Uh, That's okay, we're explicit. You do. I told you. <laughs> Like, fucking say fuck. <laughs> Do it. Yeah. What's easier? What's going to make you feel better, you know? Yeah. Well, and th- that's a great point, right? As this, this is an immediate gratification kind of thing, right? Um, and that's part of why it is so addicting. Mm-hmm. Substances or really any kind of like process behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because there is that immediate release of all those feel-good chemicals, Right that typically we have to work a lot longer or harder for in a natural way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels like a, a cheat um, in some ways. It's hard to let that go. And which yeah. I feel like is easier to do. It's easier to get through that process if you have the support systems and mm-hmm. the money and the people in your life who mm-hmm. are with you through that and can you can afford a certain type of lifestyle. You know, again, living in poverty is trauma in and of itself. And I feel like that is a very easy segue into maladaptive coping skills. Hey-o. Yeah. <laughs> I just had a thought. Um, we went to our KSAP Conference Kentucky Association for Sexual Assault Programs mm-hmm. in December. Mm-hmm. 
um, and I do not remember that gentleman's name, but he was um, a keynote speaker on the second day. He -hmm. is a professor, though, at the University of Kentucky in the social work department. Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe. Is his name Alex? I'm terrible with names. I am too, but... I'm good with faces, not names. Mm -hmm. um, But he's a social work professor Mm -hmm. and um, told his story of addiction and recovery. Mm -hmm. And he really presented a very alternative view, in my opinion, of what true recovery really needs to be. I liked it. So he runs a nonprofit, and the entire basis of his nonprofit is meeting people where they're at. So typical recovery he was talking about is you need to be sober to be able to access any resources. So if you start using again, you lose your housing. If you start using again, you lose any type of public support that you would have gotten. Like sobriety is the key to most recovery. Not to accessing resources, you have to be sober. But his nonprofit was like you. You can, st- you can still be using, we're going to help provide the resources. So he told a story about how he has a laundromat there and anybody can use this laundromat. It's right in the community. And, oh, mm-hmm. while you're doing your laundry for an hour and a half, you're out bad smoking a cigarette. And then all of a sudden you're talking to a recovery counselor while you're smoking your cigarette. And then that's that little, little mm-hmm. treating someone like a human. So they're ready to take that step into I can talk to a counselor. I can better myself. Um, You know, the two words that came up as you were saying that is like connection and community, Mm -hmm. right? So um, in my opinion, those are the two most strong indicators that somebody is going to sustain recovery for an extended period of time Mm -hmm. is that they have connection Mm -hmm. and community, right? and that model sounds beautiful, uh, and there's a reason why it's working, right? It's because they are creating a recovery community within their organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, I'll brag on True North all day. Uh, you know, Travis and Lauren have done a beautiful job of creating a community mm-hmm. um, there for the clients, but not just the clients, for the staff too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had a very fortunate experience at my very first job in the field. I worked at the Hope Center Recovery Program for Women in Lexington. And at that time, the staff there was like literally the most beautiful group of powerful women I had ever had the ability to have contact with, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That feel of safety, of comfort, and camaraderie, um, True North is the first time I have had that in a very long time. Mm -hmm. Um, Our staff genuinely loves each other and are are there for each other, right? Um, We laugh a whole lot and we have so much fun and the clients see that. It's contagious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that community being there um, has to be authentic and real, or the clients read it. <laughs> we all read it, right? Yeah. Um, energy follows it. Yeah. And so um, you walk in our space and you can feel the energy of like fun and passion that, uh, you know, Lauren and Travis have infused into that space, into their company. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's kind of intoxicating. <laughs> That's we have that here too. So there's a lot of trauma stewardship, and you guys are all doing your work and creating that. And that, that is what we have at New Beginnings. Yeah, we do. And you know, not everybody here at New Beginnings is woo woo, right? Yeah. And here's the beauty of that: we provide a lot of woo woo opportunities, and we also say. Hey, you know, if you don't want to be a part of this, that's cool. That's cool too. Like, we're bringing in um, a drumming, we're going to do a drumming circle, uh, four sessions, four staff. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm hoping to, to field it out. Um, but with understanding, not everybody maybe wants to do that. Yeah. And I, I think it comes back to, again, one of those pillars of trauma informed care is choice, right? Like, I am not going to be the best fit for every client that walks through our facility. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's cool. I don't want to be the best fit for every single client, right? Um, How does that work? Sorry, I just, okay. Okay, So here we have a waiting list, right? And on the waiting list, like I just had an opening that um, opened up on my caseload. And so I just took the next person. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. But there's no understanding of if this is a a good fit until you're in it. And then you, you have those conversations. But I think about like, in, you know, the mental health world, like, I chose my therapist that yeah. I see for a very specific reason. And at True North, do the clients get to choose who they want to see? Or is it very similar, like, there's a waiting list and, oh, Beth is the next person and here you go, it's Beth. How does that work? So it's a little bit of everything there. Um, We have a pretty big clinical staff at this point. Um, Some of us are taking new clients and some of us aren't. So that definitely impacts things. Mm -hmm. Um, Like myself right now, I'm not taking new clients because I'm trying to kind of pivot more and providing clinical supervision there at True North. Right. So I have my caseload kind of shut down and any Mm -hmm. new spots or I'll just roll into that. Um, We have whole lot of therapists though and we have kind of an excellent receptionist um, <laughs> she's the loveliest uh, and so she does a really great job of knowing everyone's specialties and really what's going to work based on the client that's calling so uh, even though my caseload is closed right mm-hmm. I might get a little message from Serena that says hey so-and-so called and they they really think that they would like to see you and here's what's going on Mm -hmm. right and so then we can say oh yes or no right or maybe that'll work or maybe it won't um the other thing is every client that comes through and is going to the IOP is assigned a therapist upon intake right now if for some reason that didn't work out they have the ability to switch their therapist their case manager or their peer support specialist we do too at any time yeah um Yes. And so I think it's just, I don't know, we've got a little bit of everything and it kind of depends on each person's like practice within the practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and then we have some of our maybe younger therapists that are doing the intakes, um, but then they're coming in and staffing those. Uh, I love that learning. Yeah. I love your website. Let me just say. Thank you. I love their website. I haven't looked at it. <laughs> it's so, it's pretty. That's my word. It's informative. Um, and it definitely has the vibe of like welcoming, warm handoffish, 
And I, and I saw like case managers, I saw therapists, I saw peer support, and I was like, that's kind of like everything mm-hmm. that I think somebody who was in recovery would need. I don't know, because again, I'm not that world, yeah. but I was like, that kind of, like, it's like that safety net. Mm-hmm. And there, there's like multiple layers. I'm like, I really like that. I like yeah. that. But it's a really cool website. Well, we will link the website yeah. in the show description. And I'm going to have to check it out. And just looking at time, it's been a oh, little yes. over an hour. <laughs> so we, we just got so wrapped up fun. in conversation. We did. So is there any um, last sentiments or any amazing things that you would like to tell our listeners that they should know about the recovery world or about you or... Oh, gosh. Um, well, I will say that we, at True North, we're getting ready to do a, a big training day. And so that's on uh, March 7th. It's a Tuesday. It's a full day. Um, we brought in some cool trainers. <laughs> uh, we have some of our staff being spotlighted as well. So Neat. please come join us for that. Um, but we have big things cooking at True North. We're doing fun things. CEUs <laughs> offered for the training. CEUs offered. Six CEUs. Sixty dollars. Right. Very nice. Okay, March 7th. Yeah. Do you already have that like on your page or it is on our website. Okay. Sign up went live, I think, earlier this week. So okay. we've got that going. Okay, so can we do how would you feel about answering like three rapid fire questions just okay. for fun? Let's do it. 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 Okay, my first one. This is my go-to rapid-fire question that I love. If you could have any superpower in the world, what would it be? Oh, gosh. Hmm. I know. The power that comes with a superpower, right? Yeah, that's a really beautiful and kind of difficult question. So my immediate, like, gut response was, like, the Harry Potter, like, cloak. Oh, okay. yeah, right, The invisibility cloak. Um, that was a pretty cool power. Um, I was going to say the ability to mind read was my second thought, but then I was like, oh, I feel like I read emotions pretty well. I don't know that I need that. So <laughs> I think I want the cloak. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. What is your favorite gadget? My favorite gadget? That you own. Mm-hmm. Goodness. Um, I love this question. I hate it. It's <laughs> when you first asked it, I was like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> so I was like, "What the fuck are you asking that for?" <laughs> Is this like electronic gadget or like I don't know? You get to decide. It's, uh, that's why she loves it. It's so open ended. I I like it now I've, that we ask people because yeah. everyone has the same reaction. But when she asked me for the first time, I was like, "What?" I love it because I for me it's a window. Just to know more beautiful things about somebody. Okay. After you answer, I will tell you what my favorite answer has been so far about somebody. Okay. Um, so the thing that comes to mind is I have this, like, starry night projector, I guess. I mean, it's not actually starry night, but, right? Yeah. It, it puts, like, the northern lights and then the stars mm-hmm. on the ceiling. Oh, um, So I like to run that in my yoga studio. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it just came from my husband really loving uh, sparklies. So uh, I enjoy that. I like mm. it. I want one. <laughs> Amazon. 
Um, I'll tell you the quick before she asks the next question. So I don't remember which episode it was, but somebody said a can opener. And that has been my favorite beautiful answer because yeah, I definitely need that, especially with the way the world is going. Right? Mm-hmm. Everybody go get your can <laughs> And not the electric kind, okay? I'm talking the hand kind. Listen, you heard it here. Go get your one. Okay, anyway. <laughs> if you could be any animal, what is your animal? Mm, I would say like a little fox. Um oh. Fox energy. I definitely pick up fox energy from you. I 100%. Yeah. Yeah. The playful, <laughs> yeah. curious. The, they're always in movement. Mm-hmm. Same. <laughs> yeah. I'm was, over here rocking away. I know. I love it. Which was really cool. I've only seen a fox in real life one time in my 47 years. Mm-hmm. I've always been on the lookout. And I was driving home to my house one time and I live off Hillcrest uh, and right past the golf course I saw a fox actually I lied I've seen twice now I saw a fox dart across the road and I was thrilled because I, I finally I have seen one in real life mm-hmm. that was the first time the second time was this past year and around this time last year and we had some mice in our garage mm-hmm. Because my husband loves to feed our birds. That's his thing. And he had, I guess, not been keeping the bird food in the container. I wasn't paying attention because his thing. So I said, we're going to live trap mice and we're going to release them. Mm-hmm. You know, that was my thing. And he goes with me on my wild ideas. He grumbles, wow. but he doesn't. And um, I researched it and we drove three miles away. Right? You have to drive three miles And so three miles away was Rose Hill Cemetery, which I was like, this is really pretty at nighttime. Like, I was, it was really pretty. Anyway, I saw a fox there. So that's seen them twice. And they're beautiful. I grew up in the mountains of Appalachia my entire life. I never saw a fox in person until I was sitting on a rooftop in Brighton, England in college. And I just saw a fox run through the middle of the street. And I was like, this is the middle of a city, but here's a fox. And I grew up in the woods my entire life and never seen a fox. So that's my first fox story. I was like, oh, wow. Like, is this real? Is this real life? Have, yes. have I been drinking too much? <laughs> and last year over in our Henderson office, mm-hmm. they actually had a den. Oh, they opened their yeah. back door. They showed us. Tara did. Mm-hmm. She had taken videos of a fox family. Mm-hmm. It was just like you would, in my mind, see in England. Like a big, like mm-hmm. hill, like a fairy hill, you know? And um, the fox mama and daddy and the little kids, is that what they're called? I think kids. Yeah, they're called kids. Okay. <laughs> just, and to watch them playing on the hill in the sunshine. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's right outside their back door at mm-hmm. work. I was like, mm-hmm. you all can just open your door and just eat your peanut butter sandwich or whatever you're eating for lunch and just enjoy and regulate. Nature. <laughs> I've really enjoyed this. Yeah. Same. This has been lovely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, yes. Thank you for thank having me. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you taking an hour and so out of your busy schedule to be on our podcast. Absolutely. 
And so we just want to thank everybody um, wherever you are, if you're in Asia, China, uh, Wyoming. Uh, thanks for tuning in. And remember, you can change the world tomorrow just by listening today. Have a good one. Bye. Heck yeah, Wyoming. What? <laughs> well, we've made it to the end of our episode. We want to thank you for listening. We hope you'll take something you heard today and use it to change the world tomorrow. We wanted to thank our music producer, Seth Hedges, from Uriah Wild Media. His website is in the show description. Also, a big shout out to Roddy Newton, our technical advisor. See you next time. This project was supported by grant number VOCA 2020 Green River 26, awarded through the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet by the U.S. Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet or the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you.